Well, amen. Welcome. Excited to continue our series in the book of Daniel. Let me see if this clicker is going to work for me. There we go. Um, Awesome. Real quick, I don't know if if everyone knows this. My wife is pregnant. She's in her third trimester. Not everyone knows. So here's your announcement. She's pregnant. We're having a boy August uh, 27th is our due date. So excited about that. Well, let's jump in to this, uh, our message today. You can go and open to Daniel 2 if you would like to turn there. Um, a commentator named Donald Gowan talks about a time he picked up a National Geographic magazine and read an article on the Aleutian Islands. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. But this is a picture of them, and um, it's the tail that comes off Alaska into the North Pacific. So if you can kind of see that Alaska on a map. And this eyewitness was commenting on just the brutal weather. It's just awful. Cold, wet, harsh all the time. And uh, the person had this to say about the islands. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. (laughs) And Gowan said this. I thought that was what it was like for the writers and readers of the apocalyptic books. Books like Daniel, Revelation. For all they knew, the end was upon them. For the martyrs, the end of this life did come. For others, it was not the end after all, but they could see it from there. And what they needed was a word for those facing the end. So I don't know whether Jesus is going to return in our lifetime. Many have said, it's your generation. I'm not going to be one of those preachers because it's happened for literally 2,000 years. But I can tell you this. Um, It's from visions like these in the Bible that we are given a vantage point from which we can see the end, and we desperately need to. So let me set the context for Daniel chapter 2. The chapter begins with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who's had a dream that's just troubled him. He can't sleep. He can't function. He's anxiety ridden until he finds out the interpretation of the dream. So he summons all of his sages together. And it's really this laundry list of anyone who could possibly interpret a dream. Enchanters, magicians, sorcerers, Chaldeans, wise men, astrologers, saying, I want to know the interpretation of my dream. So they say, okay, tell us the dream. We'll give you the interpretation, O king. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, it's going to go like this. You tell me what I dreamed and the interpretation. And if you don't, I'll kill all of you. And they say, okay, king, tell us your dream. We'll give you the interpretation. To which he says, I see what you're doing. You're just, you're just playing for time. You think if you push me enough, I'll change my mind on this. And he says, nope, you got to tell me what the dream means. Um, Mesopotamian texts from this time have, um, have appeared that show that wise men had a number of techniques with which they could try to interpret dreams. George Schwab uh, said this, A dream interpretation manual that lists various images and their meanings has been unearthed in Susa, the ancient capital of Persia. For example, if the dreamer eats a hyena, he will have a seizure. If he eats a beaver, there will be a rebellion. If he sits on any number of things, various results will follow. If he receives various gifts, meanings are specified for each, and so on, right? You can just imagine someone comes to you looking for interpretation. I got to ask, did you eat a hyena? Okay, good. 
right? So this is what they're working with, but they're not going to be able to consult their manuals or, you know, mutter their incantations or observe the stars to get the meaning because they have to come up with the dream. So they say, uh, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Verse 12, because of this the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the call goes out, kill all the wise men. Daniel is not among those who appeared before the king for some reason, neither of his three friends, but they're, uh, they're rallied together to be killed as well. And Daniel says, what's going on? He asks the chief guard, um, Arioch, and he says, he gets filled in, and he says, give me a time. I'll, I'll reveal the, the interpretation to the king. He goes that night and cries out to the Lord, he and his friends do, and he gets the interpretation and the dream. I assume he went to bed that night and dreamed Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we hear this in verse 31 when he comes to Nebuchadnezzar. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the, world, filled the earth. And then he continues with the interpretation. Well, I should say first, uh, Daniel says, these images or these metals, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, and this great image, those represent kingdoms and kings that will rise on the earth, is what Daniel says. Then he says this, in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. As Daniel says. So, here is what a representation of what Nebuchadnezzar might have seen. Um, something like this. These are the statues we find in, in that part of Mesopotamia at the time. A golden head, a silver chest, bronze waist, iron legs, and these are supposed to correspond with coming empires, right? So there's different ways to interpret what these empires might be. The traditional view that the church has held for most of the last 2,000 years is the Roman theory, which is that the golden head is Babylon, and the silver chest and arms is Persia, the bronze middle and thighs are Greece, 
beginning with Alexander the Great and the kingdoms to come from him, who were Greek kingdoms. The iron legs, that's Rome. And the feet of iron and clay are said to be later Rome, when it was weak and crumbling. The other theory is the Hellenistic, or Greek theory. And in this one, uh, so the golden head is Babylon. Everyone agrees with the starting point. Because uh, Daniel says, you, O king, are the head of gold. So we got one. One for five. Um, the silver chest and arms are said to be media. Uh, the bronze and middle thighs, Persia. The iron legs, Alexander, uh, the great, that crushed the world, as it kind of talks about how it crushes everything in the interpretation. The feet of iron and clay are two kingdoms that came from Alexander the Great that really fought over Israel for 200 years or so, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Y'all still with me? Good. You guys are like, I just came to see my kid perform. <laughs> and this is what I get. Never again. Okay, so um, let's, as, from a conclusion, let's kind of pull some of this together. Um, if you just study the book of Daniel kind of in isolation and not look at other books of the Bible, um, think of it kind of, and as a scholar would, just what is the book of Daniel trying to communicate and study that in isolation and certainly as you bring it into conversation with chapters 7 through 11, the Greek or Hellenistic theory seems to fit well. Um, however, uh, when you look at the New Testament, especially the book of Revelation, the Roman theory seems to fit better. Let me just say this. I feel like we need to ask this question. How was this dream fulfilled? You say, well, duh. Well, maybe not. Um, because I really wrestled with this. Um, <laughs> I really wrestled with, okay, do I give a third grade level sermon on Sunday? And a third grade level sermon would have sounded something like this. You know what, guys? It's all very complicated. All you need to know is that God is sovereign over human history. And then basically say that in several different ways for 35 minutes. And I almost did that. <laughs> but I said, no. They want the deep stuff, and I'm probably presuming upon you for that. So if you come up to me after and say, I'll take the third grade sermon next time, I'll, I'll, I'll know. Um, but I feel like we have to take this question seriously. How was this dream fulfilled? Um, and because Nebuchadnezzar is, is shown what is ultimately the coming of Christ's kingdom, that's mountain that will fill the earth, um, that comes um, after these empires, and um, it's a bit of a challenge to make sense of how this is fulfilled in the coming of Christ's kingdom. The Messiah didn't come during the Greek empires, which makes the Greek theory difficult to work in. According to the New Testament, the Messiah came during the Roman period. The Messiah is Jesus, spoiler alert. And that has challenges too, though. Because Jesus' coming didn't end the Roman Empire, right? In fact, Rome hadn't even hit its peak when Jesus ascended into heaven. Rome peaked in the second century AD. So how is it that the rock of Christ destroyed Rome as Daniel seems to have seen? And if you look at the, the way it's described, it's also final, right? Verse 44, he'll bring all these to an end. They're done. They've expired once this rock comes. He says that they'll be blown away, so much so that not a trace of them could be 
found, right? Not a trace could be found. Let's be honest, a trace of Rome could be found after Jesus ascended into the heavens, right? In fact, nearly every aspect of people's daily life could trace its way back to the all-encompassing presence of Rome. So, how is it that these are fulfilled? You know, if when Christ had come, uh, if, when, if Christ had returned, we'll say, when Rome fell, as many Christians expected would happen when the Visigoths sacked Rome in 410 AD, then we might have said something like, okay, well, for some reason it took a few centuries, but Rome did fall, as uh, Daniel saw, and it became the last human empire, as Daniel saw. But I don't have to tell you that Rome wasn't the last empire to rise and fall on the earth. Many empires have risen and fallen right up to this day, and we can expect more to rise and more to fall. So again, how is it that this dream is fulfilled in the coming of Christ's kingdom? I'm glad you asked, and you want not a third grade answer. So um, I want to put up some slides that I'm pulling from uh, a class, New Testament class I taught uh, one time. Um, the, the basic division of history, as seen by the Old Testament people, looked a lot like this. So you had the present age, and by the present age, I'm not talking about us. The present age was, that's the time of Daniel. That's the time of David, Jeremiah. That's the present time. And they are waiting for the Messianic age, right? which is a whole new era of human history. And this is really the, the twofold division of human history. We could parse that a little bit more and say this, the present age for them, that speaks of the time before Messiah comes, characterized by the domination of Israel by foreign powers, exile, the travail of Israel awaiting the Messiah, Israel's to remain faithful to God and keep Torah, that's God's law, while they wait for God's salvation through Messiah. And then the Messianic age spoken of this way. That speaks of a time inaugurated by the Messiah, characterized by deliverance from oppressive nations, end of the exile, and the establishment of Jerusalem as the seat of power across the earth. Two significant features of the Messianic age are the giving of a new covenant to Israel that would provide forgiveness of sins and renewal of their hearts by the Spirit, thus enabling them to keep Torah. The Messianic age was associated also with the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. So, all of that was what Jeremiah, Daniel, Isaiah was seeing when they talked about the coming of the Messianic age. The Messiah comes, his name is Jesus of Nazareth, he walks the earth for 33 years, ministers for three and a half, dies on a cross, is buried raises again on the third day, is with his disciples for 40 days. Peter senses something significant about to happen in Acts chapter one. He says, Lord, is it this moment when you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel, the fullness of the Messianic age? Here we go, let's do it. Let's kick some Roman butt and bring the fullness of your kingdom. And Jesus does something no one saw coming. He leaves physically. His presence is with us, of course. Matthew 28 makes that abundantly clear. Let me, I, I don't know if I can stress this point enough. No one in the Old Testament or the time of Christ 
thought the Messiah would come and then leave physically and then come back several thousand years later. You will never turn to a passage in Isaiah and Isaiah will say, it's gonna be awesome. The Messiah is gonna come. He's gonna walk on the earth and then leave for thousands of years and then come back, right? No one saw that coming. So in some ways, the New Testament is trying to grapple with the reality of a Messiah that came, inaugurated part of the Messianic age, but not all of it, and then left, and then promised to return. And so this is the division of history, more or less, we see in the New Testament. The Old Testament is God's election of Israel as the vessel through whom the promises and covenants will come. The Messiah comes, and guess what? Jesus does bring the kingdom of God. You're not waiting for it to come, by the way. It came with Christ. And some aspects of that kingdom came with him as well, like the new covenant that was prophesied. And a global reach to the nations, maybe not through a sword. But he left, right? And there's other aspects of the, of the messianic age that are not with us, right? Like the new creation. So what happened is the Old Testament prophets, they looked um, at the messianic age with this kind of telescopic vision. And when they did, they saw it all. They saw the wolf lying down with the lamb. They saw swords being turned into plowshares, wars ending, nation states coming under the sovereign rule of God. They saw all of that, and they saw the new covenant, and they saw the Gentiles being reached by the light of the Messiah, right? They saw all of that in one snapshot. It's, it, it's kind of like this, if you can work with me. Say I pull out a telescope, which we all use all the time, and I look through the telescope, and I see a hilltop. And on that hilltop, I see a, a few families having a, a wonderful picnic. And I say, oh, isn't that nice? And they're, they're eating their, their picnic. They're throwing a Frisbee. It's beautiful. It's sunny under this tree in the shade. And what I don't know as I'm looking at this is I don't see the valley below. I don't see the lion down there or the marsh. I don't see the that they actually kind of started their picnic a little early because I see the tall grass they took and I see a bunch of half-eaten watermelon and juice boxes down there, right? And that's really how the, the prophets saw the Messianic age. Like all the other Old Testament prophets, Daniel sees Christ's kingdom on earth and the end of all other kingdoms in a single snapshot, not coming in two phases. And so then what the New Testament authors did is they said, okay, no one saw a leaving Messiah they went back to the Hebrew scriptures and they said, okay, Psalm 110, yeah, I can see the ascension here. Psalm 1-2, yeah, I can see the ascension here, right? But again, no one saw that coming. So what I want to do now is take this message of human history as revealed by scripture and bring it into conversation with the ways in which people now talk about human history. And I want to kind of keep working with this imagery of, of dreams. Um, so I think we're encouraged to do this, by the way, even by the book of Daniel. Pastor Bart mentioned last week that Daniel was taught the literature and language of the Babylonians. He was conversant with this culture, their ideas, their myths, their customs and norms. And I think we need to be that as well, as exiles in the earth in our time. So I am going to throw out some ways in which we here, in our ears and in our time, people talk about what human history is. I'll begin here. Human history, it's said, is the unfolding of nature, right? 
So here, this is, we could think of secularism more broadly or materialism more specifically. Materialism, that idea that all that is, all that exists is matter, the material world. And there is no supernatural existence or reality. And so really what nature, all, all it is, is just the, sorry, history, all human history is, is the unfolding of nature of which we are a part. And deism kind of works the same way. Deism teaches, okay, sure, maybe there's a deity that created the universe, but then after the, that deity, he or she created the universe, they stepped back and let their beautiful creation run its course and would never dream of intervening in that world or acting in any way within that world. They're completely hands-off at that point. So some people, many people, view human history as the unfolding of nature. And there's different ways in which we postulate what will unfold. You know, one idea is that humans, at least on this planet, we are going to uh, exploit our planet until it becomes uninhabitable. Popular example, movie Interstellar, if you saw this, which also leaves out hope that we might find some way to live sustainably with our planet and find a way to colonize worlds beyond, which could happen, by the way. Elon Musk is pushing for a colony on Mars. <laughs> there will probably be a colony on Mars in the next two decades. It'll be wild. Um, another more bleak uh, idea of how this will unfold is that our national differences will become unreconcilable. We're too powerful for our own good. Popular example, did y'all see this movie? I do not recommend it, actually. Um, it really messed with me. But anyway, nuclear apocalypse unfolds and civilization collapses. Um, another popular way in which we've talked about this is that, um, so by the way, artificial intelligence, it's already here. If you don't know that, now you know. And it's changed civilization in many ways and reshaped our lives. And by artificial intelligence, I mean machines and computers that um, are able to mimic the um, decision-making and problem-solving capacities of humans. And that's already here, and they're very good at it, given some situations. Um, and the fear, of course, is, is that at some point, these intelligent systems will become self-conscious, throw off their human overlords, and take us all over. Popular example, <laughs> who is that in the back? I found this from Robert Iserlow. I was like, oh my gosh, thank you, Robert. Uh, by the way, that is our pastor 25 years ago, if you're visiting with us today. Um, okay, let's move on to another one. Human history is dualistic. The idea here is that the fabric of the universe is such that we're in this constant balance between good and evil, light and dark. And sometimes this is an impersonal battle or balance, sometimes there's a personal good guy, bad guy in this, right? Um, and you see this in, in Taoism and Taoism. It's the yin-yang symbol, right? Um, you see this in folk religions and even among some Christians, if I can say it. Um, I think some Christians, they, sometimes they almost talk about the devil as God's nemesis. God does not have a nemesis. I want to be abundantly clear about that. Almost as though yeah, like the devil's 20 feet tall, but God's 30 feet tall. They duke it out. It's a good fight. The devil lands a few good punches, but in the end, God takes them down. That is idolatrous. There is no difference between my power and God's power and the devil's power and God's power. 
My power and the devil's power can be measured. God's power is infinite. There's literally no difference. God has no contester. He has no nemesis in this world, right? Popular example of this, gotta be. Star Wars is a hopelessly dualistic narrative, right? This balance between the dark side and the light and how that plays out. How about this? Human history is the story of human progress. This is humanism. This is our our day and age that we live in now. You know, Hegel was an early uh, 19th century philosopher who taught that the universe will experience its spiritual potential through the progress of human society. So if we can just get better, more rational, more free, and, and and progress, we can challenge the thesis with an antithesis and form a synthesis. We'll keep doing that, and society will get better and better and better, and we'll just create this utopia through our human effort. And the non-religious example of this would just be progressive secular humanism, right? Eventually, we will, through our best efforts, without that stone cut by no human hand, create a utopia on the earth. Popular example of this, everything you stream. (laughs) Um, Another kind of subset of this would be this idea that at some point, humanity itself would progress to where we're already seeing this, uh, our experience Increasingly augmented by technology, right? Um, I think of Elon Musk and Neuralink, and at some point maybe we'll be able to connect to the internet in our head, and we'll and we'll see these these body bags as limitations that we got to get rid of, and we'll trans we'll transcend our biological selves. A popular example of this is the movie Transcendence. Um, if you don't know this stuff's out there now, I'm just talking about it, right? Um, this, this one creeps me out, no question, because the Bible expressly talks about the image of God as being an embodied experience. Okay, let's move to um, the fourth one I'm putting up here is human history cyclical. There are lots of people, billions on the earth that function this way, see human history as a, as a cycle of sorts. You see this in Mormonism. You see this in ancient and modern uh, paganism. Paganism is a cyclical worldview where, you know, even the, the turning of the seasons from spring to summer to fall to winter for, to spring to summer to fall to winter, that's just a reflection of the gods and their experience up in the heavenlies. It's, it's, it's cyclical. You see this in the Eastern religions of Hinduism, paganism, uh, sorry, pa- Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, Sikhism with reincarnation and such, and also New Age mysticism. A popular example of this is probably the Wheel of Time series that just recently came out. Um, fun story, it's definitely cyclical, right? Um, and the idea here is that we're basically trapped. Humanity is trapped in this cycle of events. Um, and I'll just say this, you know, if it feels like human history is cyclical, um, and I think a lot of people ask, like, well, I mean, is it though? Don't we just repeat the same stories of pride, violence, manipulation with each generation? Doesn't the Bible itself say there's nothing new under the sun? I mean, doesn't it kind of feel like we're just in a cycle? I'll, I'll say this to that. If it feels like history repeats itself, then it's because humans are hopelessly predictable. 
Not because that's the fabric of the universe or something like that. Um, We reach for the same forbidden fruit. We build the same towers of Babel, which is also Babylon. Humans repeat the same age-old behavior patterns, but we shouldn't see human nature as being a reflection of the nature of the universe. So, we're not stuck in some cycle. Our patterns can be changed, history itself can be changed, and that brings us to the final one. Human history is linear, coming to a supernatural conclusion. This is what Nebuchadnezzar sees, right? Christianity is not the only religion to suggest this. Judaism and Islam does as well. Popular example where this view can be found? The Bible. I recommend you pick up one and read it. Um, This is the Bible's view of human history. Uh, Years ago, so when I was in high school, I was, I was, just a revival guy. I was crying out for revival at Oak Mountain High School where I went. I remember I would fast lunches uh, once a week and just pray for revival for my friends. I, I led the first party uh, campus ministry my senior year. And, uh, and even here at Fullness, I, when I was in, in, in uh, youth group here at Fullness growing up, there were 40 kids every night. We were just crying out to the Lord. It was powerful. Full, full, youth group is wonderful now. Sorry, I don't want to say make any comparison there, but it was, God was moving in powerful, powerful ways, and I was just crying out for revival. I remember this. And I had a day uh, in college where I was standing there, and I was kind of just in a place of communing with the Lord, but not really saying or thinking much, and I heard an internal audible voice. I want to be clear. It wasn't a thought or an impression. It was an internal audible voice say. You think revival's the pinnacle. And I kind of just was like, what? Not sure what to think. And then the voice came back and said, no, the pinnacle is me sending my son back to the earth. And that is the biblical story. And we're experiencing foretastes of the messianic age right now. And the pinnacle will arrive when Jesus returns and we enter into something utterly new, something completely different. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from here. Nebuchadnezzar is being invited to see the end of all human kingdoms. And everyone who has seen or heard this message has also been invited to see the end of all human kingdoms like Nebuchadnezzar saw. I just, I mean, what is that world gonna be like? Can you imagine? Where everyone only always agrees with God. And I wanna be clear, heaven's coming to earth. So this is not some, a lot of Christians think that the eternal experience of the believer is gonna be like floating around on a cloud, eating metaphysical grapes and playing hearts or something like that. That is not the biblical story. We're gonna be raised from the dead and God's kingdom is gonna become manifest on this planet, right? Heaven is this interim until Jesus returns. So, someday Jesus will return and you should long for that return. It is the pinnacle. 
of human history. But how do we navigate this experience now of living under a Nebuchadnezzar and then a Belshazzar and then a Darius and then a Cyrus and then a Bush and then an Obama and then a Trump and then a Biden and then maybe another Trump <laughs> and then a golden head and then a silver chest, and then a bronze waist, and then iron legs, and on and on it goes, and still the rock cut by no human hands has yet to end all human kingdoms. And the cry of the church should be not, I want the best human kingdom, that's fine if that's a, a, a secondary longing, but bring the mountain, bring the rock that will ground all these kingdoms to rubble and not let a trace of them remain. Hopefully that is somewhere in your soul. Hopefully we don't have such tunnel vision for our own discrete little lives and our, our family that we have lost a heart, a longing, a bridal cry. The spirit and the bride say, come, Revelation says, for this mountain that will fill the earth. Why hasn't Christ's kingdom come? Rather than letting that be some kind of accusation, let it be the longing of your soul. It will come. Christ will do all that when he brings the fullness of the Messianic age at his second coming. It's not the end of the world, but we can see it from here. So how do we describe our experience now um, with a trace remaining of all of these kingdoms and powers? Um, the Bible gives us different words. One of the key words the Bible gives us is the word exile. That we feel like exiles in this world. Arioch, the, I'm almost done, y'all. You're doing great. I just came to see my kid perform. <laughs> the chief uh, commander of the guards uh, brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said, to him, said thus to him, I found among the exiles from Judah a man who can make known to the king the interpretation. Daniel goes to his three friends before he gets the word and says, cry out to God. Seek mercy from God concerning this mystery. But I want to point out, this story in Daniel 2 is not a matter of the anointed man of God saying, I got this, guys. I'll go get the word. It's he goes and he enlists the prayers of fellow exiles. He goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, cry out to mercy for God with me. And we read this. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom wisdom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. We're not in a cycle. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in darkness and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. If you've made known to us the king's matter. I want to just highlight the plural pronouns here, right? 
you made known to me what we asked of you. He, he absolutely believes it was through the prayers of fellow exiles that the revelation was given. And he hasn't yet gone to Arioch or to Nebuchadnezzar with the dream or interpretation. Sounds like he ran to his friends and shared it with them first. You made known to us the king's matter. That this revelation is, is birthed within the exilic people of God in the earth and then carried prophetically to the cultures around us, the often pagan cultures around us. And this is what the pagan culture really has to say in the face of these mysteries. The thing the king asks is difficult, the wise men said, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, this story emphatically says God's dwelling is with flesh. It's with you. It's exactly where he dwells. It's exactly the kind of God you serve. Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, verse 46. Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Let's just look at this for a moment. Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face. He says, your God is God, Daniel. I now know who the true God is, the Lord of kings, the God of gods, because of what you did. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. And you think, well, that's, that's Daniel. I mean, he is Daniel, and he had a book of the Bible named after him, and he was an Old Testament prophet. So thanks for a wonderful story that applies in no way to my life. You ever read 1 Corinthians 14? But if all prophesy, then the unbeliever outsider enters. He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And falling on his face... He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You may not stand before kings or world rulers, but you will stand before neighbors and co-workers. Let me ask you this. Who troubled Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar was troubled. Who troubled him? God did. You may not stand before a troubled king, but I promise you'll stand before a troubled mind a fractured soul, a hurting person, desperate for meaning in this world. And it's exactly there we are to partner with the Spirit of God to let people see what's really going on, both in their story and in his story of all of human history. Because God dwells with flesh. I preached too long, so just stand with me, and I want to... I just want to invite you, just for a moment, if you, let me just say, if, if you would like for God to release a greater uh, experience of hearing his voice, of partnering with him, and seeing people come into an understanding of his kingdom, Prophetically, I just want to encourage you, lift your hands out. 
And rather than me pray for you, just in your heart, just begin asking God for that to be released. Come, Lord. God, thank you that you dwell with flesh. Thank you, Lord, that we are invited to participate. God, it's among the exiles that this revelation is birthed and released. And Lord, we increasingly feel as Christians, like we're being marginalized in this country and in this culture. Would you fill us, Lord? Would you fill us with your presence and your power? Would you open our mouths? Would you loose our tongues? Let your word be on our tongues, Lord. God, let the secrets of people's hearts be disclosed by your power through us, that if they fall on their face, they fall on their face, but ultimately let them declare that God's really among you guys. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Bless you as you go about your day. Those who are visiting with us, thank you for being with us here today, and we'll Scott will pick up next week with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Bless you. Have a wonderful day.